All right, so today, Foucault once again, Madness and Civilization. So this text was written in the early 60s, uh, actually maybe the late 50s, because there are a bunch of different versions, but it was part of um, his dissertation. Uh, and it was, as the title suggests, an exploration of madness and history of civilization, which is a kind of a misnomer because he only really talks about, you know, 14th to 19th century uh, Europe, but whatever. Uh, so a few things to say, or one kind of thing to say before kind of jumping into this, is that I'm going to try and disturb what I believe to be a popular understanding of this text. And I believe that understanding goes as follows. I think that some people think that in this text, Foucault is saying that at one time, madness was a thing that was privileged. It was something that was kind of exalted for its ability to communicate a kind of truth by virtue of the mad existing on the margins of the social order, and therefore having a kind of privileged position of being able to look from the outside in. And people give the example of the fool and like Shakespeare and stuff and all that, yada, 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 which we'll talk about here. Uh, but then at some point, that changed, where all of a sudden the mad were kind of confined. They were shut away, hidden from sight. Now, that is what I believe to be the one of the popular readings of this text or understandings of it, to which I'll say right off the bat is wrong. Very, very wrong. So, you know, I'm, I am straw manning because I'm not giving any names as to who actually says that. Uh, but just to kind of set the stage for what I'm going to try to do, I'm actually going to say that, well, let's just get into it. So the first chapter of this text is titled Stultifera Navis, or The Ship of Fools, which is a play off of a certain German allegorical fable, but that's kind of not that important. Uh, and at the beginning of this chapter, he gives us the, um, the fact that leprosy plagued the Middle Ages. Leprosy was something that was of great concern to the public and by you know various governments, people in power, that saw it as a threat to health, both physical, mental, you know, it's kind of naive of me to draw that division because, as Foucault will come to say, that division wasn't quite so neat, but leprosy was certainly perceived as a problem. So in order to battle leprosy, various lazar houses, as they were called, or kind of, um, you know, homes in which people were placed if they had leprosy, uh, emerged. They were erected. So for many years, people who showed symptoms of leprosy were just sent there. They were sent in these homes that where they would be ostensibly cared for. So Foucault tells us that at their height, leprosariums, or the places where lepers were held, people suffering from leprosy, at its height, or at their height, there were something like 19,000 of them, which is a pretty significant number. However, something happened, and as early as 1348, Foucault tells us, leprosy was on the decline to the point that the Middle Age, by the time the Middle Ages rolled around, or were coming to an end, sorry, leprosy had almost disappeared completely. However, all these buildings remained, and the kind of general logic of displacement or putting people away that were sick uh, kind of remained, because leprosy posed like a real threat. So the very the logic that that kind of um, that fermented as a result of that continued, i.e., the logic of confinement, more kind of generally. So what better place then to put people, the undesirables, or as Foucault labels them, the incurables and madmen were then shut away into these buildings that were still there, that still housed the memory of confinement of the sick. Now what did these houses hope to accomplish? That is one of the guiding questions throughout Foucault's text here, and it's one that he doesn't give a full answer to because there is no full answer. He gives a bunch of different hypotheses, different possible explanations as to why people believe the idea of confining people was something that would help them or cure them. But it was not, that wasn't quite the case. So thinking back upon leprosy, Foucault says that the disappearance of leprosy was not because of the triumph of some kind of medical intervention or, you know, triumph of positivist, you know, medical theory. But was instead, maybe, he says, the fact that there was a, a break suddenly with various wars going on and all that, 
uh, between the quote-unquote west and the east. So that broke off um, the possible, you know, extension or continuation of lepers or traveling of lepers between these two poles, between these two areas. So Foucault gives this kind of, you know, real possible explanation as to why leprosy disappeared, but that still begs the question, why did people think that putting them away in these homes was a way for, you know, leprosy to be cured? Foucault says that maybe this had something to do with God. So he says that he hypothesizes that maybe these kind of uh, leprosariums, as they were called, uh, was a way to kind of hold the leper in a, in a, on a kind of pedestal to make them the sign of God's anger and God's grace, which, you know, we could read into that, just serves the end of uh, ostensibly proving the existence of God. Because like, you know, Catholicism, we can't have any relationship to God apparently unless we have various buildings erected in his honor, their honor, her honor, who knows. Um, so the, the Lazar houses or the leprosarium served the end of making sure that the leper was held in a kind of state of, um, a kind of liminal state because they were evidence of God's anger, because they were being punished, but at the same time of God's grace, of humanity's desire to intervene and make people better, which was, you know, at that time, it doesn't seem like a, a strange way to think about it considering, you know, the pervasiveness of religion. <laughs> But as was suggested earlier, uh, soon the leper got to be replaced by, you know, madmen, vagabonds, everyone that could fall under the umbrella of, you know, the destitute, those people that didn't belong to society, criminals, you know, adulterers, and anything like that, that, you know, people wouldn't fit into the so-called social mold, would then be, you know, cast into these various places. But that was only really one solution for these people. And hence, now we get the title of the chapter, that is Stultifera Navis, the Ship of Fools. So these people weren't just sent to asylums. In fact, there was also a, very, a project of sending people out to sea. This is because the sea more or less opportunized the Mad's possible disappearance. Sending them out to sea made sure that their fate was indeterminate. Chances are they weren't going to be coming back, that is. However... You know, the, the, the idea of the Ship of Fools, Foucault says, only goes so far because these asylums still were starting to emerge. Asylums, that is the leprosariums or the Lazar houses being transformed into places for uh, lepers, or sorry, for the mad that came to replace leprosy. Uh, to this, Foucault adds a little, you know, side thought, suggesting that um, the possible rebuttal, or not so much a rebuttal, but the... Um, qualification that maybe it was just for like people native to that community or country that would be sent to Lazar houses and then people that were foreigners would be cast away to the sea to which Foucault says that that wasn't quite the case because these uh, asylums housed both people from um, you know native to that land and people alien to that land so he asks you know what is what is going on how do we how do we make sense of this seeming you know, these two disparate uh, responses to madness, that is sending people out to sea, where their fate is indeterminate, or kind of locking them up in confinement in these houses. Well, to focus on the idea of the sea for a moment longer, Foucault says that the sea in many ways mirrors what he calls, or I'll just quote him on page 12, water and madness have long been linked in the dreams of European man. That is because like water, mad people were considered to be totally obscure a kind of they had a kind of depth to them that was unknown they didn't belong to anything concrete there was no reason nor stability among them like like the sea which was you know a place in the imagination of the european europeans um the sea was something to be feared precisely because of its indeterminacy because of the fact that it represented the complete unknown or what foucault calls a moving chaos so at the end of the Middle Ages, Foucault says that the Ship of Fools began to hold a place or take up a space among, you know, within literature and within other various kind of iconographic uh, spaces, which for him is very interesting. Because at one time, you know, the Ship of Fools was something that 
Europeans weren't necessarily proud of, right? But then it started to occupy a certain place within the cultural imaginary, to which he says that this might be uh, simply because the, uh, the, the ship of wolves represented the type of unreason that your, the European, you know, dominant social order feared. So it is from this that we get the idea that I kind of presented or began this talk here with, the idea that uh, the, the, the mad were kind of held in a kind of state of, they were privileged because of the knowledge that they held, because they were, you know, began to occupy the literature, iconography, they were then able to, I guess, enter into the European imaginary as a site of a kind of freedom. They were outside of the bounds of the social order. So it would seem at this point that, you know, that the idea that I'm kind of going to be struggling against here seems to be correct. You know, that the the mad held a kind of privileged position within the, the social order, within literature, arts, all that stuff, uh, which, which is correct. It's really the next part, the part about confinement, that is incorrect. And we'll, you know, we'll get there. Not quite yet, though. So for Foucault, the mad or the madman was the person that stood center stage as the guardian of truth. It's on page 14. Um, and the mad, mad then stands opposed to folly. But beyond that, the mad served another purpose, a kind of strategic purpose. So among the kind of obscure regions of life, of the European imaginary, uh, among the sea, among the mad, one of the other obscure things that kind of haunted European imaginary was death. Death was that thing, that kind of indeterminate thing that was coming. Everyone knew that it existed, but no one knew, really knew what it was. Sure, they'd have religion to explain it for them, but at the time when you know the Renaissance was right around the corner, various, uh, many of these kind of religious themes were starting to be questioned. Or we don't actually need to kind of give it uh, think about it in terms of that re the religious framework. We could just think of it, uh, death as being something that, you know, we try to exercise, we try to conjure away by, you know, erecting religion to give us explanations for it. So it still exists as a kind of obscure mystery on the margins, but it is something we've tried to, you know, essentially make sense of. So the mad for Foucault presented a way for us to get away from that concern and to essentially displace it onto the mad. So where at one point we were concerned with death as being our limit point, we then began to understand madness as being the limit point of our very reason. And by virtue of this, Foucault says that the mad actually come to internalize a kind of deathness. They become living, walking, breathing death just because of their you know, lack of humanity. They are, they are what is believed death to look like. So this is, serves a strategic form of giving death a kind of tangible form. Now this is, and I don't mean to bring up another thinker, because if you, you know, if you don't know, then it's kind of esoteric. But this really sets the, doesn't really set the stage, but Baudrillard writes about this in symbolic, symbolic exchange and death, how death was conjured away, and that was the first uh, kind of excluded pole of existence because it was something that we didn't humans couldn't understand especially in the age of reason so anyways that I digress so this serves the strategic end of giving death a kind of tangible form because if we can give death a tangible form then we can approach it in an in a more uh, methodical more clean-cut way so if death is tangible suddenly all of the lazar houses the leprosariums the ship of fools all the things that we have come to do or erect to combat madness then serves the end of us combating death itself and all these ideas are brought up on page 16 17 in the my version is the vintage the vintage one uh which probably the one everyone has uh anyways so the entire experience of madness as it was you know, approached by literature and iconography and all that, uh, comes down to a basic fissure, kind of scission, scission, between what Foucault calls figure and speech. Or this can also be understood as a bifurcation between form and content or meaning. So what Foucault says is that 
uh, at one time there was a kind of what he says in the Gothic period, there was a kind of symbolic form or figure that was grounded, that was that was solid. But he says that the the Gothic form forms persist for a time, but little by little they grow silent, cease to speak, to remind, to teach anything but their own fantastic presence, transcending all possible language. So freed from wisdom and from the teaching that organized it, the image begins to gravitate about its own madness. So you have the form, and in this case, the image. So he continues here, and this is on 18. Paradoxically, this liberation derives from a proliferation of meaning, from a self-multiplication of significance, weaving relationships so numerous, so intertwined, so rich, that they can no longer be deciphered except in the esotericism of knowledge. Esotericism. Esotericism of knowledge. So whereas you had a kind of stability present in this Gothic period, soon the thing that was being signified, the image, sort of became kind of deterritorialized unknown. It then became to represent instability, unreason, a kind of freedom from the shackles of form. And by virtue of that, it was able to proliferate, to extend itself endlessly. Now this serves as, this sets the stage for how, doesn't really set the stage because we weren't talking about it for this long, uh, but the way that the mad were kind of perceived within literature, iconography, mirrors this basic trend where madness being something that was indeterminate, that could only make reference to itself and its constant proliferation and its constant um, kind of liberation, you know, free to move anywhere and that's all it does, totally devoid of any form that could be understand understood, then mirrors this other trend that Foucault is recognizing going on in uh, the kind of literary literary world or the kind of art world. So as he says, the image is then free to gravitate about its own madness. So another place that demonstrates this or another site for this possible liberation was the dream. Dreams were a site that didn't correspond to the kind of rigid formulaic uh, you know, area of form. So as he says, uh, meaning is free for the dream, he continues, this symbolic wisdom is a prisoner of the madness of dreams. So at this time, and we're talking here about the 15th century, uh, liberation, this, this signaled the liberation from form, and that ultimately 15th century man was more concerned with this idea of um, dreams as a site of liberation than, than the flesh, because the flesh was you know, grounded, was kind of boring. That is before it started to get cut up and, you know, uses cadavers and all that. And here we add yet another figure to the kind of unknown imaginary or the freedom assumed of a kind of deterritorialization. And that is the animal, the animal that is free from domestication. Uh, so the animal is freed from domestication that reveals the sterile madness that lie in man's hearts. It's on 21. So in the kind of ambiguity associated with madness, with dreams, with the animal world, with nature, all that, Foucault makes a very interesting claim. He says that madness fascinates because it is knowledge. What the hell does that mean? Well, he says that it is knowledge because all these figures are in reality elements of a difficult, hermetic, esoteric learning. They can't be understood via the very formulaic and methodical approaches we, you know, craft. They can only be understood within themselves. And because knowledge is understood as being primarily an esoteric thing, you know, no one is born with knowledge. It has to be learned through experience, through teaching, through all that. The height of that, or its apotheosis, is that form the most esoteric form that is madness, that cannot be understood by just anyone. It is something very specific to a very select class, because that is exactly how knowledge is, un knowledge is esoteric. That's what this, you know, YouTube channel is trying to disturb. Uh, but over the course of history, the more esoteric the knowledge was, the more sought after it was, the more uh, privileged it was. Which, Foucault says, reveals fundamentally that, on page 25, knowledge is absurd. So if, you know, you're hearing this and you're getting the sense that madness is 
kind of assumed to be, you know, a number of things. It's assumed to be freeing. It's assumed to be a kind of liberatory potential and all that. Then you'd be right. But something changes at some point for Foucault. He says that at some point, the mad cease to be held in this kind of, you know, they, they stop being a kind of transcendent space for liberation and instead become a more terrestrial kind of material thing. And this will come down to the bifurcation of psyche and body and all that type of stuff um, that simply becomes common. It becomes banal. It ceases to house a kind of potential for liberation. And this happens, Foucault says, when the mad begin to be institutionalized. They become evacuated or they are evacuated of any potential they have to arrive at a kind of ulterior truth and instead become a site of, you know, banality. Something that has to be corrected because it's just a nuisance. So that then propels us here into the second chapter, The Great Confinement, which, you know, the title alone suggests these people are going to be confined. And this is where we're going to get into the problem I presented at the very beginning, that there's a problem with, I think, the dominant interpretation. So in the classical age following the Renaissance, the classical period, which was about, um, I, you know, it's, it's hard to read this book because Foucault talks about all these different things going on, but doesn't always situate them. So, you, you know, you're reading it and you're like, I don't know if this is relating to the Renaissance, the classical period, or, you know, what even what classical period he's talking about. So when I use the classical period, it is the one following the Renaissance. So from about the mid, early mid 18th century to the early 19th century, give or take, um, about that kind of period. So he says that in that period, the classical age, as he says it here, uh, they sought to reduce to silence the madness whose voices the Renaissance had just liberated but whose violence it had already tamed. And that in Paris, at one time, one in every hundred people, so 1% of the population, were confined for, for being mad, for belonging to the domain of madness. So there was a very specific event in Paris that kind of catalyzed this. It was the founding of what was called the, the uh, Hôpital General, which is the general hospital, uh, which was not, for Foucault, a medical establishment, it is rather a kind of semi-judicial structure for the monarchical and the bourgeois order being organized in France. But of course, the church, you know, in opposition to that, wasn't off the hook either. The church had its own kind of hospital-like institutions that were, as Foucault says, and in classic Foucault fashion, were meant as a kind of punishing system. They were a judicial system. And then the same thing was seen occurring in England where there are various houses of correction erected that were actually opened up by, you know, private citizens. So you had, if you had the money to do it. So, you know, in Paris, you know, you had the influence of the government in it. You had the church in England. You had these private citizens. You had a very heterogeneous, as Foucault calls it, emergence of these, um, these, these houses of correction. To which he says, okay, we have, a, we have something that might at first glance appear to be a very disparate thing. However, he says that it doesn't seem to be coincidence. This is all kind of happening around the same time and has all has the same agenda. So he asks, you know, what is the guiding thread here? So he says that there, there are two primary things that kind of motivated this. That is the emergence of a kind of police force across Europe that could, in fact, uh, realize this possibility. But then you have a probably the more legitimate explanation, and that was that all across Europe, and this could be related to the Protestant work ethic. Uh, people, the, the entire culture began to have a kind of sour taste in their mouth about idleness, about licentiousness. So then what better way to put people to work than to shove them in homes where they have to work, you know, perform free labor, essentially, because it was seen as a, um, a kind of non-Christian, you know, virtue to be lazy which is then, it's no coincidence why then beggars were highly incarcerated. But these institutions as just places, and I, I kind of jumped the gun a little bit here, uh, these, these institutions were essentially a failure because they were just a way of getting 
lazy people out. But then they transformed into essentially labor camps in the 19th century about where, you know, what better way to uh, stimulate a labor force than to make people work, you know, under whips and chains. Which ultimately reveals that in the kind of cultural imaginary in the European zeitgeist of the time, labor, you know, putting one's body to work was seen as a panchia. So a... Uh, um, a kind of universal antidote to all problems. Because if you work, you don't have time to worry about X, Y, and Z things. Something that's very much repeated today by various, you know, people. Make your bed every morning type people. So idleness and a kind of pride in idleness was seen as the greatest sin. So for Foucault, the houses of confinement in the classical age constitutes the densest symbol of that police, which conceived of itself as the civil equivalent of religion for the edification of a perfect city. So ultimately then, madness was understood as follows. The new meanings assigned to poverty, the importance given to the obligation to work, and all the ethical values that are linked to labor, ultimately determined the experience of madness and inflected its course. That's on 64. So this flies in the face of the popular understandings of madness, at least those spouted by various psychology departments around that, you know, the diagnosis of madness is grounded within a kind of medical intervention that saw various, you know, goes through, went through vigorous, um, you know, proper channels like experimentation, study and all that, which then gave rise to madness, gave rise to the DSM and all that stuff. Whereas Foucault says that no. This actually had something to do with a, a broader cultural logic against idleness and against licentiousness that simply put people in homes. So it actually goes in the reverse order where this logic portends, sets the stage for the emergence of psychology and not the other way around. It's not as though psychology comes in out of nowhere and then says, oh wow, we have to start treating people like they're human. We have to start treating people like they're in need of help and all that. It's like, no, 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 you don't get to do that. You are the product of another oppressive system, a kind of oppressive cultural logic. And then here we go into chapter three, the insane. So then from the mid 17th century to the mid to the end of the 18th century, Foucault says the, the age of reason confined people. So it is here now that we're going to get finally into what I believe the proper reading of this text is. Not that the mad were hidden away in confinement, but that something else was going on, and it goes as follows. So Foucault says that before the 17th century, people were evacuated of their evil in public because, you know, they were a site of shame for families, for civilization, and all that. So then it was believed that, you know, if you were bad, if you occupied unreason, if you were a criminal, vagabond, you know, drunk, anything like that, uh, you'd be cast away because you were considered to be shameful. However, this was not the case for the mad. For the mad, they were put on display. So they were confined, yes, but they were also kind of carnivalized. So as Foucault writes, unreason, that is criminals, were hidden, or was hidden, unreason was hidden. But madness continued to be present on the stage of the world. So that's on page 69, sorry. So at one time, the mad held a kind of privileged, kind of strangely exalted place, and they were free to kind of exist among everyone else. And at some point, they were put behind bars, but they were still free to be seen. They still were, it was still, um, um, what is the word? I don't know. They were still desired to be seen. And this attests to the fact that, fact that in Paris, one of the biggest uh, lazar houses or leprosariums that were still there, kind of house of confinement, um, had almost 100,000 people visit it because of the curiosity that filled you know, the European imaginary. So it's not as though, and it might seem like an insignificant qualification, but it's not as though the mad were simply confined because that's far too short of an analysis. That is, it's too simple. Because then, you know, you, you're you presented with that thesis and then you're able to make all these kind of 
what I believe then to be incorrect assessments of the current state of, you know, madness or mental health issues or anything like that, where it's like, yeah, we don't know how to treat it because as Foucault says, you know, we, we just develop mechanisms to hide it, which wasn't at all the case. They were still put on display. They were then put under even, I would say, even a, a, a more more concentrated gaze so yeah so that's that now Foucault moves on to the idea that or kind of wonders why the quote-unquote mad were treated the way they were so beyond being punished or punished beyond being excuse me beyond being confined they were also punished now this punishment was not simply a kind of punishment for itself or punishment to kind of correct as though it were applied to any other human. There was something specific about the mad. That is because Foucault says that the mad attests to the perceived animality of them, a kind of beastliness that was assumed of them. So this, we need to deal with this very carefully, because assuming of the, to assume of the mad a kind of animalness, a kind of beastliness, might on first glance appear to be a, a kind of remnant a relic of the older conception of the mad as a site of liberation. Because we associate with the animal, we associate with nature, a liberation from the confines of society. To which Foucault says that at this point, that is not the case. Instead, what the uh, turning or the kind of animalization of the mad represented was what he called the zero degree of his own nature what he will come to call a state of non-being, a state of pure uh, non-potential. So this relates back to the idea between form and image, where the image is just left to proliferate among itself, so too the same is assumed of madness. So at one time this proliferation was seen as a way to, you know, extend beyond the confines of society, Whereas now, it is seen as a closed system in and of itself, a kind of um, tautological system, one that can only make reference to itself in its own closed-in madness. And by virtue of that, you know, as I said, they were considered non-human, a non-being even. So obviously, the consequences of this are serious, because then these people weren't considered in need of care. They were simply, because they were considered less than human, they were considered less than being, they were considered to be, you know, fine. It would be fine to simply let them suffer. Or what is more, their treatment was simply to restore them to what was purely animal within them. So they saw within madness, or they, you know, the kind of medical gaze, or if we could call it medical at that time, the kind of judicial gaze, um, saw in madness a kind of animality. So they said, what better way to, you know, deal with an animal than to treat it like an animal? And of course, this speaks to the broader understanding of, you know, nature and animals at the time. So then it was because of that, treating the mad like animals was then considered a cure in and of itself. Because it was simply diagnosing the problem. Like, obviously, this mad person is trying to return to a kind of animal state, a non-being basic state. So then they must be... We must catalyze that. We must help them. So you know, beat them into submission and beat them to be, you know, as animal-like as they can. And then, you know, the putting on display like a kind of a zoo also contributes to that. But as animals were understood at that time in this way, what that says to us is that animals did not belong to nature at that time. Because nature was beginning to be codified. Nature was beginning to be you know, understood under a kind of anthropological or geological or geographic or whatever, whoever studies nature, naturalist, maybe, whatever. Uh, under any of these gazes, nature was starting to be classified and coded. So people started to believe that nature itself was a very structural thing. It had a logic to it, and that logic could be fundamentally understood. It's very much the case today. That idea has continued. Um, so therefore, this idea of the indeterminate animal that the mad person was becoming was then seen as an anti-natural thing. Because at the same time as 
people were considered to be turning into animals by virtue of their indeterminacy and their uh, ambiguity and all that, the mad that is. At the same time as that was occurring, what we were seeing was the growing codification, the growing classification of nature. So we, get, we began to assume of nature, associate with nature this, this coded you know, system. And then everything that didn't kind of comply with that was considered anti-nature. Therefore, and this feeds into the idea of the mad being even below being, they were below nature, or what Foucault calls anti-nature. They didn't belong to any order and were therefore considered totally devoid of any possible, you know, good treatment, or they were non-deserving of any good treatment. So where at one time the mad and animals and all that could occupy a kind of um, negative or what do you, uh, da, 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 could, sorry, could house the power of negativity, Foucault says, now they were totally evacuated of any potential because they were just thrown out of the Hegelian dialectic, kind of put, cast off into space almost, so that they couldn't actually have any effect as an oppositionary force, as an antithesis to the dominant framework. So this, so why then, Foucault asks, were, was, were the mad displayed but not those other forms of unreason, that is criminals, vagabonds, drunks, all that type of that thing. Um, and this is because Foucault says that the mad, as I think we alluded, suggested earlier, the mad demonstrated the depths of God's love. So it might seem strange. How then is, you know, the mad, how are the mad considered a sign of God's grace? It seems like they were treated pretty poorly, to which Foucault gives this answer. So for classicism, and this is on 82, for classicism, the incarnation is no longer madness. But what is madness is this incarnation of man in the beast which is, as the ultimate point of his fall, the most manifest sign of his guilt, and as the ultimate object of divine mercy, the symbol of universal forgiveness and innocence regained. <clears throat> so henceforth, all the lessons of madness and the power of its instruction must be sought in this obscure region, at the lower confines of humanity, where man is hinged to nature, where he is both ultimate downfall and absolute innocence. So it's in that way that it occupies this kind of dual space, kind of liminal, while still taking from both the sign of, you know, the fall of humanity towards a kind of beastliness and animality, but that's at the same time of kind of pure innocence, pure innocence that humanity gathers around to try and, you know, treat sign of God's, you know, grace in that way. So then, yeah, that propels us here into the, one of the bigger ideas that he gives us, and that is that unreason really liked madness because madness gave it a way for it to differentiate itself from madness, from all things considered, you know, totally outside of the bounds of um, the unreason reason dialectic or their their relationship, because unreason serves as a kind of anti-reason; it opposes it, whereas madness simply exists outside of that paradigm. So, as he, as he says on 83, unreason for classicism had a nor nominal value. It constituted a kind of substantial function. It was in relation to unreason, and to it alone, that madness could be understood. Unreason was its, unreason was its support, or let us say that unreason defined the locus of madness's possibility. So, for classical man, madness was not the natural condition, the human and psychological root of unreason, it was only unreason's empirical form, and that madman, tracing the course of human degradation to the frenzied nadir of animality, disclosed that underlying realm of unreason, which threatens man and envelops him all the forms of his natural existence. So then that propels us here into chapter 4, Passion and Delirium, where for me it gets complicated. And I'll, I'll say, I think I got it, but... You know, obviously, everyone should read this book uh, and get their own thing out of it, but I'm going to try to be as faithful to Foucault here as I can. So madness, it was believed, was seen as a kind of product of the passions, kind of product of, you know, the, the passions. <laughs> Foucault says that actually, in response, the problem is in the associations of the passions with madness. So the passions existed for a long time, right? 
But at some point, because of the general logic of madness as that was being formed, it was then assumed that you know the passions were the cause of this madness, whereas for a long time they weren't, because madness didn't exist proper. And the passions were considered the thing that binds body and soul, the thing that exists between both and that goes moves between both. Therefore, it sets the stage for what it means to be human, what it means to be a being, and therefore sets the very stage for the possibility of madness itself. It must play some kind of, uh, it must portend it to some in some way. It must, within its conception, in a single person, have some kind of fault that leads to madness. So madness responds to the passions by essentially disturbing the distinction between soul and body, that thing that was assumed passions kind of, the passions kind of brought together. However, madness never completes this project. It never actually takes them apart completely. So in madness, Foucault tells us on 93, the totality of soul and body is parceled out, not according to the elements which constitute that totality metaphysically, but according to figures images which envelop segments of the body and ideas of the soul in a kind of absurd unity. So fragments which isolate man from himself but above all from reality. Fragments which, by teaching themselves, have formed the unreal unity of hallucination and by very virtue of this autonomy impose, impose it upon truth. So there is the replacement of what, you know, we could say, using his language, truth. There's kind of truthful distinction between soul and body. Whereas with madness, what it does, and this sets this is due to its commitment or its fidelity to the image, it essentially replaces this truthful split with a kind of imaginary, an, a hallucinatory split. So it is then, this is still in 93, it is then that escaping truth and its constraints, the unreal appears. So madness then begins in this way, when someone gives the value of truth to the image. So he continues, the madman never oversteps the image presented, but surrenders to its immediacy and affirms it only insofar as it is enveloped by it. So it's not as though they don't, or, so it is quite simply that they just give themselves over immediately to the image. They don't try to, you know, find the truth or question it. They just simply feed into it. So then, Foucault gives us an example of a man who claimed to be made of glass. So the man who, this is on 94, so the man who imagines he is made of glass is not mad, for any sleeper can have this image in a dream. But he is mad if, believing he is made of glass, he thereby concludes that he is fragile and that he is in danger of breaking, that he must touch no object which might be too resistant, that he must in fact remain motionless, and so on. So Foucault says that this man made of glass who believes they are fragile is, you know, is mad because they are giving themselves over to an image, a kind of imaginary thing, making it truth. But what he does say about them is that they are not devoid of reason. So he says on 95, the ultimate language of madness is that of reason, the language, but the language of reason enveloped in the prestige of the image, limited to the locus of appearance, which the image defines. Because it, it is syllogistic. Man says he's made of glass. Glass is fragile. Therefore, man is fragile. It is very, it, it's logical in the kind of Socratic sense. So it is therefore, you know, not unreason. But it is an unreason, as Foucault says, bounded by an image. Bounded by a kind of imaginary, hallucinatory fever dream. So here we enter a kind of paradox where Foucault says that in this delirium, this kind of belief in the image to this extent, he calls it a pure reason. Reason delivered from all the external tinsel of dementia, which is located in the paradoxical truth of madness. And this in a double sense, since we find here both what makes madness true, irrefutable logic, perfectly organized discourse, faultless connection in the transparency of a virtual language, and what makes it truly madness, its own nature, the special style of its manifestations, and the internal structure of delirium. That's on 97. So then what, how do we talk about delirium then? Well, Foucault gives us a few different ways to approach it, you know, delirium being that submission to the image. Uh, and this is between 98 and 100. He gives us a list of three or four, four things. 
Um, he says that in madness for the classical age, there exist two forms of delirium, a special symptomatic form proper to some of the diseases of the mind, and especially to melancholia. In this sense, we can say that there are diseases with or without delirium. But then there exists what he calls another delirium, which is not always manifest, which is not formulated by the sufferer himself in the course of the disease, but which cannot fail to exist in the eyes of anyone who, seeking to trace the disease from its origins, attempts attempts to formulate its riddle and its truth. So then number two here. Uh, so this implicit delirium exists in all the alterations of the mind, even where we would expect at least. In cases of no more than silent gestures, wordless violence, oddities of conduct, classical thought has no doubt that madness is continually subjacent relating each of these particular signs to the general essence of madness. He goes on a little more, but I think it's fairly self-explanatory, kind of thing that exists. You know, it's not just in certain spaces that we find it. Uh, three, thus understood, discourse covers the entire range of madness. So madness in the classical sense does not designate so much a specific change in the mind or in the body as the existence under the body's alterations, under the oddity of conduct and conversion, of a delirious discourse so it's not you know devoid of that and discourse permeates within it and this you know lets Foucault say that the simplest and most general definition we can give of classical madness is indeed delirium and then finally with number four language is the first and the last structure of madness its constituent form on language uh, on language are based all the cycles in which madness articulates its nature so these are important conditions to consider because they trouble the idea that, you know, delirium, madness, all that exists outside of the framework of the discursive, you know, knowledge producing paradigms in which it is believed to exercise constantly anything that is non-rational, that is non-true, that in fact, in these circles, we can find, you know, the very foundations of delirium or madness, and that within delirium and madness themselves, we can find traces of what is supposed to be or purported to be kind of basis in knowledge, or truth, or logical reasoning, and so on. So then he says, in relation to all this, we must approach it obliquely, interrogating the experiences which are to be found in the immediate neighborhood of this essential language of madness, that is, the dream and the delusion. So then we get the same thing here as the dream, or as he said earlier, um, you know, the person it's not unlikely for people to believe themselves to be glass, because he says that, you know, you could have a dream believing it for a moment but then you the sane person ostensibly is able to snap out of it and say yeah that was that was an illusion that was a dream so the dream then deceives it leads to confusions it is illusory but it is not erroneous he tells us that he continues and this is on 104 madness begins where the relationship of man to truth is disturbed and darkened it is in this relation at the same time as in the destruction of this relation that madness assumes its general meaning and its particular form. So what is this, you know, this truth? Foucault here quotes the, the encyclopedia, which says that there are two forms of truth. There's physical truth and then moral truth, where according to the encyclopedia, physical truth consists in the accurate relation of our sensations with physical objects. So, fine. And then moral truth consists in the exactitude of the relationship of the relations we discern either between moral objects or between those objects and ourselves. So it's pretty clear how the mad disturb those connections to truth because where a physical object might be perceived as the same person as, you know, the physical object everyone else perceives, for the mad there it is not uh, it is not that thing. It, it it becomes something else that they then believe it to be true. And of course, in the case of the moral framework, uh, a kind of a disturbed understanding of truth, even in and of itself, be it through physical, physical truth or, or whatever, will then disturb the moral framework in which you operate. So because madness is committed to image, to falsity, to error, to untruth, it is then, as we were getting to earlier uh, in relation to the animal, it is then considered, you know, a non-thing. It is then considered not to belong to, you know, the very order of the world itself. So, as Foucault writes, joining vision and blindness, image and judgment, hallucination and language, sleep and waking, day and night, madness is ultimately nothing, for it unites in them all that is negative. It's on 107. Um, 
So then he says that a, a, a rational hold over madness is always possible and necessary to the very degree that madness is non-reason. So then we get to the fundamental idea then that the mad are then seen as, you know, not only unreason, but, you know, underneath even the possibility to negate reason. Underneath, you know, the possible dialectic framework. So he says then that the um, uh, unreason is reason-dazzled. Reason kind of... Uh, reason is fixed to see nothing. It is simply fixed only to see the image, the hallucination. So the mad then directly opposes, you know, the Cartesian method. So Descartes closes his eyes in order to see truth, whereas the the mad sees truth everywhere, see truth in things that are untrue. They see it, you know, with their eyes wide open. They see what Foucault calls, a, um, they see only night and not seeing at all believes he sees when he imagines. So then he uses this to close off this chapter to suggest that madness is again that place that is of non-being right because it doesn't commit itself to the ontic conditions of the world it kind of gives itself over to a fantastical non-world and i should say here that reading this it's difficult to parse out where foucault is or what foucault is saying and what he is reading and other people saying like he gives quotes and all that but his own analysis often makes it difficult to say or to discern whether or not these are the views he's espousing or he's just describing the way it was experienced at the time. So I'm not as clear about that maybe as I should be or parsing out exactly where, you know, we're reading Foucault or reading Foucault the historian because I don't want to say for sure. Oh, that was a cat um, in case you were curious. So yeah, I'm not as clear about it as I could be because I'm worried myself to say, you know, this is Foucault here and this is the, you know, the people he's reading, which might be a failure on my part and to which I'll take blame for. But yeah, I just did, I couldn't bring myself to, you know, setting out exactly what, who was saying what. So this is just what we, we have here. Okay, that puts us then into chapter five, Aspects of Madness. So this chapter goes over the different approaches to madness and how they kind of went along with the various historical ideas. So here he talks about four different um, disorders. That is mania, melancholia, and then hypochondria, and uh, hysteria. So he talks first here about mania and melancholia. So melancholia was was a disorder that existed well within the world. You know, it was an experience of sadness, a kind of um, heavy emotional state that would make, induced by, you know, real conditions that existed. So up until the 17th century, melancholia associated with the humors. So if you aren't familiar, the humors are you know, those things within us, like blue, like the biles that could be regulated by, you know, letting out blood in order to have new blood um, uh, be created uh, or if there was a kind of disharmony between the biles, you know, you'd re- release some blood for that reason, um, or anything like that. And for more on that, like, cause I don't have time to explain it in great detail, just Google quickly, you know, the biles and it's pretty, the humors, it's pretty straightforward, I think. Um, so melancholia up until that 17th century was considered a problem of the humors. So there are a few different perspectives around melancholia and the humors. The first one was that melancholia was associated with humors because of their qualities being similar. Uh, That is melancholia juice being cold and dry, like melancholia. Melancholia being the experience of coldness and dryness, apparently. Coldness makes more sense, a kind of emotional distress. Uh, Closing oneself off, you know, isolation, stuff like that. So the second debate was that, or idea was that the severity of the melancholia, ep- melancholic episode related in inverse proportion to the subject's propensity for it. So the happier generally someone was, when a melancholic episode came, the harder they would experience it because they weren't um, in tune with it. They weren't prepared for it. They weren't uh, used to it, acclimated to it. So th- then number three, uh, the qu- qualities were not fixed. So they were, they were relative. So for one person, what might be a, uh, a melancholic episode for another might be, you know, run of the mill 
day that they are ready to experience and live with and not fall into a kind of melancholia. Uh, and then the various qualities are subject to various different instances in the world, like accidents, for instance, like real things. So melancholia then for Foucault, and this is the what I think the primary point, not of just this idea of melancholia, but the entire book, was that melancholia derives from these archaic beliefs about the humors and not from medical theory, and that's on 121. So melancholia held a very important place within the kind of medical imaginary because uh, it would come to stand in for, quote, all forms of madness without delirium. So at the end of the 18th century, uh, they would then be classified as melancholia, which is on 124. So then we get the absolute opposite of melancholia, which was mania, which... Uh, is presented by uh, another, you know, thinker of this stuff uh, named Willis, who opposed mania to melancholia. Now, over the course of this chapter and the last one too, I should have said it. Um, Foucault presents a number of different thinkers, like scientists at the time and religious figures and all that. I didn't go into any of them just because it like t- it would take so long, like to just be throwing names out and it's confusing and you get like lost. So. You know, obviously I'm doing a disservice to Foucault, but just for the sake of this format, I need to be more as precise as I can without being confusing. So in opposition to melancholia, we have mania. So melancholic, the melancholic was still clear-minded. They were sad, for sure. They were destitute. They were isolated. But the, the, the maniac was burdened with a kind of excessive thought. They were always, you know, always going a thousand miles a minute. What guides the two, however, it was believed, was the movement of various animal spirits within them, within the people. At least that is historically as it was understood. Now that came to be replaced. And in the case of mania, because it was indeterminate, the, ma- the maniac was someone flying all over the place that was um, kind of rhizomatic. That fit in very well with the growing understanding of the body, with the idea of nerves, blood vessels, kind of the indeterminate sphere of that of that domain that was, you know, free to move wherever, kind of. Uh, and which suddenly, suddenly, it marks a shift from what he says in animal spirits to attention to which nerves, vessels, and the entire system of organic fibers were subject. It's on page 126. So then all these weird, what I say now to be weird, but, you know, at the time it wasn't, weird remedies came about. So the maniac was perceived as being, you know, really hot, right? Whereas the melancholic was cold and dry. The maniac was wet, hot, moving around, you know, had to be calmed down. So then it was believed that pouring cold water on the maniac was, you know, a way to go about solving that issue, which is logically consistent. You know, if you say the maniac is hot and by virtue of their being hot, uh, you know, are out of control, what is the opposite of hot? Cold. Cold must do the opposite to kind of bring them to an Aristotelian mean, the medium. So then it became uh, a matter of understanding these various um, disorders, like mania or melancholia, not in relation to the animal spirits, but in relation to what Foucault says, uh, certain qualitative themes. It's kind of things consistent among them. So this also portends or kind of gives over to the shift from the animal spirits to the idea of the psyche how things could be rooted in the brain, not in, you know, the entire body that has the biles out of whack or anything like that. And that this reveals, once things are reduced to the, you know, the brain, that they aren't different in kind. They're different in degree. Where the maniac is just the, the same person that could suffer melancholia, but at the moment, you know, it's experiencing a certain kind of uh, psychological phenomenon to a certain extent while the, the melancholic, melancholic is experiencing the opposite. So then we move from there, from mania and melancholia, into the next two, the last two, uh, hysteria and hypochondria. So hysteria and hypochondria kind of exist on the margins of the medical framework, the, you know, the medical framework around madness. So hysteria, he tells us, are when overheated spirits are subject to a reciprocal pressure, and hypochondria when spirits are irritated because of a matter that is hostile and inappropriate to them. So like everything else though, slowly these disorders began to 
I guess, move over into the medical domain. So during the classical period, he says hysteria and hypochondria slowly joined the domain of medical diseases. It's on 137. And of course, the way that these diseases were treated had a very gendered component to them as well. As Foucault uh, presents one person saying, if a disease of unknown nature and hidden origin appears in a woman in such a manner that its cause escapes us and that the therapeutic course is uncertain, we immediately blame the bad influence of the uterus, which for the most part is not responsible. You know, and then, you know, that's just one example I give, but riddled throughout this chapter are examples given by people that um, explain various mental diseases as being caused or when they are experienced in women being caused by their anatomy. Like they're they just something fundamentally wrong with women, which goes back, you know, obviously thousands of years in the treatment of women in various medical professions. So yeah, hysteria, hypochondria entered into the kind of medical jargon of the time. But Foucault says, and this is kind of a hard to discern, he says that uh, it, they, their entering that field was different from mania and melancholia because uh, they were not based on what he called primitive qualities. That is because apparently hysteria and hypochondria did not manifest various, um, like, uh, real bodily um qualities like uh, bodily reactions in ways that mania or hypochondria did. So they were a lot more subdued. They were hidden, kind of existed in simply in the brain, right? So then they were not, they didn't lend themselves easily to the medical gaze. So then Foucault says that that, that might be because in the case of hysteria, it leads itself or lends itself more easily to the image than an actual I illness because it must be kind of um, there has to be like a narrative imposed upon it in order to make sense of it. It doesn't just make sense by anyone looking at it. Just to anyone looking at it, they might not even see anything. But to the trained medical professional, there was something there. There was some kind of problem. And the only reason or the only way they were able to prove that was by kind of generating a narrative around it or having it be finally galvanized in the idea of the body. So then what was once relegated to a kind of obscure non-place, that is the psyche or the mind or the soul, what once occupied the soul, then began to be understood. So various cues that would signal some kind of disorder, you know, that were had to be kind of generated, at least the knowledge of these cues had to be generated, made it possible to diagnose these things when at another time that was not possible. So then you get what... Foucault calls finally an ethic of nervous sensibility, a kind of a way to understand the nervous system, what was once the soul, right? As having a sensibility that could be in itself sensed. And in the case of hysteria, because it is so fluid, it makes it so difficult to uh, negotiate, to kind of diagnose. Um, it's kind of an indeterminate sensibility, which demands a galvanization, a kind of concretization of it. And in addition to all this, going back to the uh, gendered treatment of this, it also shows that it wasn't some kind of amazingly uh, neutral medical understanding that gave us the ideas of, or the ways to diagnose all these different diseases, ostensibly. Uh, instead, it shows, a, you know, because it has its roots in such a gendered framework, such a gendered understanding of it, troubles the idea that it's so simply, you know, a neutral scientific gaze that does this. It is instead a very uh, is part of a cultural paradigm that not only creates the issue, but creates the solution for the issue. So as I said that in, uh, hysteria and hypochondria demanded their coming into being turned into a kind of image form in order to be understood, what that means is that they aren't actually cured or fixed. They are simply um, fed into a kind of image machine that doesn't get at the heart of the matter. It's on 154 that he gets into that. Um, so what this, all this essentially does is lead into a kind of anguish in people in a changing world that is the very busy and uh, loud, a world that is essentially numb. So this is the birth of hysteria and hypochondria as madness itself, as being, you know, part of a changing, you know, world where people were starting to want explanations for things. Uh, with, you know, industrialization just around the corner, various other kind of uh, changes, reactionary ones too. 
where people needed explanations, and hence, you know, these very simplistic, oppressive explanations, especially the gendered components of it. And then that'll, yeah, that wraps that chapter up, I think, pretty decisively. Uh, And this talk up completely. So I hope that that made it clearer, at least the first half here. Uh, Because this is a hard book for those that haven't read it. It's difficult for those that are planning to read it. You know, be prepared. Foucault is a brilliant, yet at times very inaccessible writer. Uh, But yeah, on that note, if anyone